Hey everybody, it's Justin Shackle welcoming you into episode 11 of Tone the Slab, Pitching with David Cohn. David's here, James Smythe is here. Guys, that, that time has arrived. We are going to open mail. You, you know, you're not a podcast unless you do a mailbag episode. So here we are, episode 11. You ready to open up some mail, David? Let's do it. We got some great questions right here. I've read read through a few of them, but yes, there's some very thoughtful questions there. And you know what? Uh, we'll, we'll take our best uh, stab at trying to give you a good answer. I feel like 10 shows in, this is a good time to kind of reset as well. We've uh, had had terrific uh, fanfare from our first 10, 10 episodes. And we want to you know kind of talk back to you guys, the listeners out there. So this was uh, this was a great opportunity to do so. Get whatever's on your mind and, you know, kind of throw them at, at David, James and myself. So, you know, definitely have a lot of questions to get to. Really tough to decide which ones to ask because there were a lot of really good ones about pitching. But right off the bat, David, how about those Kansas City Chiefs, man? <laughs> Knocking the Raiders right in the mouth after they were uh, having a team meeting at the midfield logo at Arrowhead. And then they put up no, almost 50 points against the Raiders on, on Sunday. So your Chiefs coming out making a statement here. Wow, you caught me off guard with that. I'm happy about this, though. Yes, I mean, you know, I, obviously I grew up in Kansas City. I'm a huge Chiefs fan, a huge Patrick Mahomes uh, junior fan. I was a fan of his father. He was a great major league pitcher. For, he carved out a 10-year career and certainly reinvented himself along the way. So, uh, yes, the Chiefs, when it comes to the Chiefs, the question is always the defense. It's not the offense, even though a lot of people talk about the offense nowadays and Patrick Mahomes and, you know, why isn't he, uh, you know, having the numbers he's had in the past. But to me, the, the story with the Chiefs is the defense. They're a legitimate Super Bowl contender now because of that, that dominate, that dominant defense going on right now. You know, Mahomes is always going, going to find a way to, to score your points and to, to move the ball down the field. But if the Chiefs defense is, is as good as they've looked the last few times, they watch out. They're a definite legitimate Super Bowl contender now. Fun fact about that game. Uh, final score, Chiefs 48, Raiders 9. That's uh, what is known in some newer uh, football circles as scoragami, a totally unique final score in NFL history. It's the first time that we've had a game with that score. Wow. Okay. Well, one of the big reasons why I kind of wanted to bring that up because the Raiders supposedly gave the Chiefs a little bulletin board material right before the game. So, David, I'm curious, were you ever on a team? I know it happened the other way around, but were you ever on a team that saw something from your opponent as bulletin board material and you went out and you took care of your business? You know, it's an interesting question because you don't know if there's really a correlation. Uh, there are a lot of old school players I played with that looked for those sorts of things to use to sort of manufacture a controversy when it wasn't there in order to motivate your own team. So, you know, what is real and, and what is sort of manufactured is tough to tell sometimes. And, what the impact is, but yes, absolutely. You try every trick in the book when, you know, I, I, you know, when we lost the first two games of the 96 world series, uh, the Yankees and Braves in the world series, the Braves were awesome. Uh, they blew us out the first two games at home. And there were, there was some heavy celebrating going on in the Braves clubhouse after going up two to nothing in that series. And I heard it. A lot of other players heard it. They were talking about their legacy the Braves had won in 95. They were going to win again in 96. They were, they were, they were sort of, you know, laying the groundwork for their own dynasty going on there. And I jumped all over it. I told our players about it and my teammates and tried to manufacture it and tried to use it as motivation. Uh, did that help? I don't know. I can't really say, you know, there's, there's nothing you can, 
hang your hat on to say it helped, but it certainly made us feel better and gave us something to focus on. So it's, you know, it, it's, it's a psychological warfare, so to speak, but yeah, I tried it. I, I'd like to think maybe it helped and, and worked in terms of motivation here and there. Uh, Dave Parker was the one who taught me, Dave Parker, the Cobra, the great Hall of Fame, I think, outfielder used to say, you have to find something you hate about your opponent. You have to do it because that will motivate you and spur you into better performance. Now, that's a very that's old school. Yes, exactly. That's a very old school mentality, right? Uh, does it work? I don't know. Hey. I used it. It certainly made us feel better. and maybe gave us something to rally around. Uh, how do you score runs off of that? I don't know. Uh, you win games? Uh, I don't know, but you certainly feel better. 96, conjuring up great thoughts. Uh, four straight wins after losing those, those first two games. And we had Tom Glavin on the show last week. A lot of talk about labor stoppages and work stoppages and the lockout and the strike. And here we are, second full week coming up of this lockout. But there is some stuff going on around the game there's there's two teams that still need a manager so we're hearing a lot about their managerial searches and that's the A's and the Mets and reports are saying that the Mets are down to three final candidates to be their next manager and we should possibly be getting an answer within the next week here and you played for one of the final candidates in Buck Showalter also with uh, Matt Quattraro of, of the Rays and Joe Espada the bench coach from the Astros I was just wondering what you thought about those selections and particularly Buck Showalter. A lot of people are, are kind of lobbying for Buck to get this job in the media corner of the industry. But at this point, you know, playing for him, seeing what he could potentially be working with with the Mets roster. Why do you think this may or may not be a good fit for Buck Showalter? Let's start there. Yeah, I mean, if you're reading the tea leaves, you have to believe that Buck Showalter is the front runner right now, and that if he does not get the Mets job, it would be a, a, probably a pretty big surprise for a lot of people at this point. And you know, back to the tea leaves comment, I think if you look back and to uh, some of the new owners' comments over the over his tenure, and he talked about not liking, uh, not wanting to to have somebody learn on the job on his dime. I think was was the quote or something to that effect. So that leads you to believe, you know, hey. Espada and Quattaro are two very good young quality candidates that are eventually are probably going to manage somewhere. And they've been interviewed several times already, both of them. Uh, they're both very talented, very new school mentality. They've been bench coaches. They know how to set up a, and run a team and, and a, the overall organization and you know, the collaborative effort that, that is needed nowadays in most modern front offices. But I think in uh, oh, Steve Cohen, the Mets, they're spending a heck of a lot of money. Their payroll's about 260 right now. It's probably not done. Uh, yeah, probably Buck Walter because of his experience. Uh, whether whether you, you like that or not, you know, would it be perfect? Would be like a Buck Walter and uh, a really uh, progressive young bench coach. You know, that combination. I'm a big believer of that. It's sort of these, these combination of, uh, or these collaborative skill sets that you can mesh together and have them work off of each other. So Joe Espada as – Buck Showalter's bench coach or something like that. Pretty good in my mind. Uh, I would watch if Buck Showalter gets the job, I would watch Roger McDowell as a name who has worked with Buck as a pitching coach in the past and is a former Met. So that, that could be something to watch as well as if Buck gets a job, maybe Roger McDowell uh, gets to return to, to Queens as a pitching coach this time after being a great reliever for them on that 86 world championship team. Yeah, Joe Espada fills that role right now in Houston with, with, with Dusty Baker. They kind of fit that mold right there. But 
Yeah, I mean, look, bottom line, you have Max Scherzer signed for three years, right? A three-year window to win now. And you mentioned that line from Steve Cohen, how he doesn't want anyone learning on his dime. You have these three years to kind of leave no doubt. And Buck Showalter, when it comes to maybe a learning curve from the managerial seat in the dugout, well, there really is none with Buck. So you have these three years and you can see Buck Showalter managing for at least three more years here. So it kind of matches up perfectly. And the reports going off that kind of makes sense that he is by far the front runner and it's kind of his to lose. One other thing going on right now, and this kind of just popped up right before we were recording here on Monday afternoon and Buster only tweeted this out from ESPN and he, he tweeted that major league baseball formally approved Justin Verlander's two-year $50 million agreement with the Astros. Remember, when the lockout happened, there were those reports that Verlander's deal with the Astros wasn't finalized. It wasn't official, so he wasn't officially back on the Astros roster. He was technically still a free agent, but this deal apparently has been given formal approval like 11, 12 days into the lockout. Buster tweeted that the league and the union have worked through the final details. My question to you, as a former union rep, how's this happening? Well, the only way it can happen is, is if they collaborate together, maybe to, uh, on a sidebar meeting from one of the negotiating sessions that they said, hey, can we clear this up? You know, if we both on the same page, we can get back past. It's already been agreed to. Uh, all that's left is, is the paperwork. Uh, the industry shut down. But hey, let's let's send a message that we're working together. Maybe it's uh, some sort of a you know, on an olive branch, so to speak, uh, from both sides to kind of reach out and say, okay, we can cooperate on this and get this deal announced. And uh, maybe that uh, is a portend to say, yeah, maybe they are talking. Maybe there is some dialogue. Maybe there is something going on that can create some hope around the industry. Uh, I still believe that eventually they're going to make a deal. I think they're in the framework, as we mentioned in our last podcast with Tom Blavin, that I think the framework's there for a deal. The question is, is, When's the when's that going to present itself? That that deal. When is everybody going to be on the same page? When we're right up against the deadline, and there's eventual games that could potentially be lost, is when you're going to find out everybody's position in a hurry and probably make a deal at the last minute. The pessimist in me, the, the glass half empty kind of guy, could also be looking at it as well. They don't have. Is this what they're really only talking about? They don't have any other things to get down to during this lockout. They're making exceptions for this. Is it? because they're not talking about other stuff? Uh, that's, uh, that's an interesting way to look at it. That's always possible. You know, sometimes it's better not to talk. You know, once you've stated your positions, you kind of go to your own corners for a while. And let's not muddle this up right now. Let's just kind of uh, reassess our own positions. And really, that's more for the owner side because they have a lot more to work through. You know, the players are unified together. And the player reps each have to just communicate to the individual uh, players to let them know what's going on. But it's the owners who have to kind of deal with each other. You know, uh, Hal Steinbrenner and some of the large market owners uh, negotiating with the small market owners about positions that they can live with together. So you know, I, I know I, I sound a little redundant in, in bringing that point up, but it really is true. You know, there, there's issues uh, that are more, more than just the players and the owners. It's really the owners amongst themselves that have to work out their own house in order to, 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 to be ready, to be ready to make an overall collective bargaining deal. This story just specifically with Verlander and the Astros and how he was technically still a free agent before the lockout, 
me always wanting the, the big offseason drama. I fully envisioned a scenario where we were coming out of the lockout and another team, perhaps the Yankees who did make that offer, was going to find a way to like scoop them up and take them away from the Astros. But we don't get that. We, we get a deal. We get something worked out during the lockout. So that's, uh, that's pretty interesting between the Astros and Verlander. Okay, before we get to the mailbag here, it is uh, time for the opener at the beginning of each new episode weekly. David, you start us off with the opener. What are you opening with? Well, actually, I think it's a good time for me, you know, and I want to know this for myself and then the people who are fans of, of towing the slab and fans of the Yankees and, and have heard you both of your names or seen your, your work, both, both uh, at Yankee Stadium and on the S broadcast with James and Justin. And I want to know more about your background. What got you into the game? What, what uh, was your first memory maybe of baseball? How'd you get, how'd you get into the game and how'd you get into this industry, by the way? And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll preface that by a, a unique story this year that Michael Kay was going to miss a game on the Yes Network. We, and uh, Ryan Rucco was working on the West Coast on the NBA or WNBA. So we were going to be short. We needed a play-by-play game guy for a day. Voice of the Yankees. And I, I don't think our fans know this, but both of you guys could do that job. You have done that job. And both of you were being considered for that at that point. Believe me, there, there was a point in the middle of this year where it was like, well, Justin can do it. Well, James can do it too. They've both done it in the past. So start with you, Justin, you know, our host here on, on Towing the Slab. Give us a little background. I want your Wikipedia page, only the Cliff Notes version, if, yeah, you, we'll if you can it. tell me, you know, on, on those topics. <laughs> yeah, we'll keep it short and sweet. Uh, yeah, that was, that particular day was interesting because I think Ryan was expecting his first child right around that point and his wife was going into labor any day. I was actually on the West Coast for a boxing event. And at the time, it was just physically impossible. But a couple of years ago, Michael losing his voice in a strange way paved the way for me to get my first taste of uh, broadcasting on Yes and filling in on the Yes Network. So uh, Ryan was filling in, I believe, for Meredith Marakovitz, who does a great job as the clubhouse reporter on Yes. And Michael missed his first game. And this was a last minute scenario that kind of gave the uh, the word around like three o'clock. And you know, obviously it was a seven o'clock game. Ryan got into the play by play chair and again, you know, Ryan's been doing it for years, but that was actually a big milestone for him because it was his first game at Yankee Stadium. So you think filling in a play by play. Yay, I've done it before, but this is my first game in the big chair at Yankee Stadium. So it was a big game for him. But then I replaced him. I filled in for him doing the clubhouse reporting. And that was my first time filling in on. Yes. So it was pretty cool because you know, Ryan and I are good friends. I don't know if everyone you know knows that. I know you two know it. We, we went to college together. We, you know, kind of, you know, we, we did a lot of broadcasting work in college and we both grew up Yankee fans and we both found out about these bumps up, so to speak, while we were standing in the Yankee clubhouse. So it was pretty cool day in that regard. But you know, you ask how I got here. Well, okay. Out of college called minor league baseball on the radio for five years all over the country from, you know, starting off with the Yankees at the time, their double A affiliate in Trenton to Knoxville, Tennessee, to Mobile, Alabama. I got a taste of almost every double A league. And from there, I was able to relocate back here and anchor on WCBS 880 on the radio. And I, I did a lot of work for 880. I do a lot of work for Sirius XM, Westwood One, covering their Olympic stuff, some of their NFL coverage. I do a lot of that on Sirius XM. 
I did a lot of international programming, hosting work for the NBA. And, you know, one thing kind of leads to another. And then James, you can obviously attest to this in this industry. One thing leads to another, one job leads to another. And I, at some point got the Yankees digital hosting gig. And, you know, we, we host some coverage on the scoreboard during game days. We provide a lot of digital content on the Yankees social media websites, the, the team's official website, YouTube channel, everything like that. That's kind of led to some other things. It's led to, again, me filling in on the Yes Network. And in a strange way, um, I love baseball. It's my favorite sport. And I also love covering boxing. And covering the Yankees actually led me to calling blow by blow in boxing because we go back to Meredith, Meredith Morakovitz. She has a friend who works for a boxing promoter, uh, Lou DiBella. Uh, if you're a boxing fan, you certainly know that name. And uh, out of nowhere, she asked me one day if I was interested in doing boxing commentary. And it was like, she was reading my mind because it was a big boxing fan. I, I box as a hobby and yeah, I wanted to do that forever. She had no idea that that was the case. So she kind of uh, introduced me to that, that boxing world. So I kind of have a nice Mix here of covering baseball, covering boxing, two sports I love, and it, it beats working for a living. Very interesting. Wow. All right. Okay. I, I'm going to follow up with a couple of questions there, but I want to give James James a chance to kind of get, uh, give us his, his wiki page. All right. Well, uh, I grew up in Westchester County uh, as a Yankee fan. I loved baseball and the Yankees growing up. Uh, Shaq, we're kind of in the same generation. I was born in 86. I'm not sure about you. We're 87. Uh, 87. So right around yeah. the same age. So we were lucky enough to start becoming baseball fans and, and following one of the local teams when uh, Coney, you uh, were starting a, a dynasty uh, winning championships with the Yankees. So that was uh, fantastic. And from there um, got into broadcasting. So I have the broadcasting background uh, like Justin, I got in uh, to, into the minor leagues. I did one season uh, calling games for a wood bat, uh, summer ball uh, team uh, in Lynn, Massachusetts in the New England Collegiate Baseball League. From there, got into affiliated ball with the Myrtle Beach Pelicans. Uh, this was in 2011 when they were a Rangers uh, affiliate. Um, and then from there, went on to the Bluefield Blue Jays in the Appalachian League uh, down in rookie ball. And uh, after that, ended up moving back home uh, here to the here to the New York City area and uh, landed at Yes uh, with our pal Jeff Quagliata and the rest of the research team at Yes and ended up in the booth uh, alongside Michael and Coney and the rest of the gang there. And I've been uh, in that role since 2013. So uh, a, a long time in the booth and it's been uh, absolutely fantastic. It, you know, any advice either one of you would get, I guess we'll go back to Justin and then James. Um, any advice, some kids that are like you, that, you know, or, or uh, maybe just getting into college or thinking about a future and, you know, wondering uh, any any advice you might give them to get into this business. You know, look, we're, we're part of John Boy Media. What a great story, right? I mean, when you think about their story, out of nowhere, from Yankee Twitter to uh, to our bosses, right? To a company that's, that's, right. a, that's a juggernaut right now. John Boy Media is kind of like that story. So, you know, what advice do you guys give to the kids out there that want to want to do what you do? I would say be open to doing everything. So keep your eyes open. Always say yes. Never turn down an assignment. My first ever assignment after graduating college was calling tennis on the radio. I'd never done that before, ever. But it was my first assignment. I, I was, you know, just graduated. I, I'd 
didn't know what I was doing. I was sending resumes out to a bunch of different local TV stations all across the country. And then I got an offer to do tennis on the radio. I said, yeah, I'm familiar with that. No problem. And, you know, between me lying and then going on the air and actually doing it, man, you, you make sure that you, you know, cover your rear end and you have a good understanding and you prepare properly and you do it. But I think it's really important to say yes to everything. Keep an open mind. When James and I were in college or graduating, I, you know, I don't know if I could speak to him, but some of the jobs I have now, this one included, but my job with the Yankees wasn't even in existence back when I was in college. So we don't really know what is on the horizon. That's why I think you have to keep an open mind to everything. I couldn't say it better myself. <laughs> uh, just, yeah, just be open to anything. And if you want to get into broadcasting and, you know, you want to make that first tape and, and just send it out there to everyone. Don't be shy, you know, uh, to use a, an old phrase, you know, pound the pavement, get it, you know, get your information out there, get your, your, your samples out there, your resume, all that. Um, my first uh, tape that I made to, you know, send to prospective um, uh, clubs was me just sitting in a lawn chair at a SUNY Maritime Baruch College baseball game, um, just calling the game as I was sitting in the crowd. Um, and from there, you send it out and you got to send it out a billion times and maybe you only get a couple people to call it back, but you just keep going and going and going and, and uh, hopefully it works out. So just, yeah, like Justin said, uh, say yes to everything. I think my first, I, I shouldn't say, I think I know this was the case. I had my first demo that I did and sent out to teams and it ultimately landed me to my first baseball gig doing play by play. I went to the last row in the upper deck at Shea stadium and the Mets were playing the nationals and El Duque was pitching for the Mets. And you had names like Ryan church and Demetri young playing for the nationals. So I think they were somewhere along that demo tape, but that, uh, that got me my first play by play gig in the minors. El Duque was on the mound. I know that and had a pretty big strikeout to end it, but that's kind of what you do. There are a lot of people that were around me during that night, that game kind of looking at me, wondering what the heck is this guy doing talking into a recorder in the last row watching this game. But you, you kind of have to, block out all those weird feelings that maybe get you embarrassed because you know, you want something. So if it's there for you, you, you try and go out and take it. But yeah, I grew up a Yankee fan too. James, what was, what was that first moment of baseball or a Yankees moment that kind of just drew you in and, and had you forever? Um, you know, I guess it would be, I would just remember the 94 season. I went to my first game in 93, but following games in 94 and watching with my parents and stuff. That's kind of what got me hooked. Um, and uh, meeting Don Mattingly when I was uh, seven in, uh, in 1994 outside Yankee stadium, outside the, uh, the player's eggs, it was pretty cool too. So uh, yeah, that uh, yeah, those, those early to mid nineties teams um, were really what got me, got me into the game. And my dad's side of the family is from the Bronx. So that's how I ended up more on the Yankee side than, than the Mets side. Luck of the draw. I come from a family who's my two parents. They're not sports fans. They don't watch sports at all. And I got my love for the Yankees from my grandmother. And 1994, 95 was when I first kind of had an idea of what was going on when I slowly paid attention. 96 was the team where I really followed 
day to day and, and a little bit more concentrated on the action. And this was all happening with my grandmother and Tony, believe it or not, the perfect game in 1998, David Wells's perfect game. I attended that with my aunt, my uncle and my sister. And that was like the indelible moment where I said, okay, I'm, I don't think I'm ever going to miss a game again. And uh, I actually missed your game. I was on vacation when you pitched the perfect game the next year, but uh, that, that was a moment where I was like, man, I, you know, I, I know what I, what I love to do with my free time. And I know what I want my hobbies to be. And it's all going to center around baseball because of uh, David Wells's perfect game. Very nice. Good backgrounds. And I feel like I know a little bit more about you guys. So that, that's good. I mean, I, I thought I did before, but definitely some tidbits in there that I did not know. So I think, I think that's important, you know, for me and our audience to, to see, you know, the background, what you guys, uh, you know, what got you here and why are we here? How do we all form this podcast together? So it's all great. That's right. There's, there needs to be a vetting system before we do something serious, like open up a mailbag and answer fans <laughs> questions, right? There you go. All right, let's get to it because there was a bunch. And again, we were, you know, we, this is our 11th episode, great time to reset and hear from you guys out there because the reception has, has been terrific and we're really grateful for your support and everyone who has listened so far. So we thank you but right off the bat to open up the mailbag and we're kind of going to go around the room here. So I'll, I'll start James come in, David come in and uh, we'll pick a question. So I'll, I'll pose this and this is from talking baseball. So yeah, we have fan questions, but let's start off being loyal to the company, right? All right. Is there a, ever a situation where a pitcher really wants to start throwing a new pitch, but they simply cannot figure out how to throw said pitch? Absolutely. You know, the, the prime example of that to me is Dwight Gooden. You know, I pitched with Dwight Gooden for six years in Queens. Uh, he was maybe the best one-two, two-pitch pitcher I ever saw when he was in his prime. He didn't really need a third pitch, but he always wanted to learn to th- how to throw a changeup, and he can never do it. He can never fig- find a grip that works. And, you know, the, the key with a changeup is, is that anybody can lob it in there and throw the ball slower. It's not just about change of speeds. It's about the deception. You have to make the changeup look like your fastball has to come out of the same window, the same tunnel, preferably, and the same arm speed. So it's almost as if you're like a, a used car salesman. You're selling, you're selling this changeup. You're trying to deceive a little bit. You're trying to make it look like everything else. And that's the hard part to do. Anybody can kind of grip a baseball a different way and kind of lob it in there and push it like a pie tossing contest. And yeah, you can throw a ball in there 70 miles an hour, but it's just, you know, it's just not going to be effective because you, the hitters see it right away. So that's the key is deception. So yes, the answer to that question, absolutely. There's several pitchers that have tried to, to learn how to, to throw a new pitch. And it's a story of my life. I still fiddle around with baseballs. I've got one right here, Don Larson, Don Larson's perfect game inscription on there. I'm going to break this open. I'm going to work around the signature, but we're going to get this thing open here and talk about grips. These Rubik's cubes are so hard to get open sometimes. (laughs) For those of you not watching the YouTube stream, David, of course, has a a signed baseball from Don Larson, and he's taking it out of the case here on on Toe in the Slab. So you know he means business as he shows us some grips. He's the only one in history that can write this inscription. W.S. W.S. P.G. 10. 10-8, 10-8-1956. That was Don Larson's perfect game in the World Series. Okay, the ball is here, the grip, if you're thinking visually visually at home. We had Tom Glavin last week, and, and that's the pitch I want. I want Tom Glavin's changeup. I wish I would have met Glavin earlier. He would have told me how simple it was. 
But you, you, you normally everybody who's pitched knows how to grip a two-seam fastball on top. That's a two-seam fastball. You just learn how to throw a two-seam fastball with your, your middle finger and your index finger. You're trading the stronger pointer finger for the ring finger, and you just learn how to throw a two-seam fastball. And the key with any pitch is the finish, is to be able to finish it. Um, you know, that there's a, a, there's a release point, right? On any pitch you throw, right when you get to the release point, you could, you know, I equate it like a golf ball. You could hit it a little fat. You could hit it a little thin. It's how it comes off of your fingertips. If you're timed, if your mechanics are all together and your rhythm and your timing is right, your release point just rips off of your fingertips and you get that finish to it. You, you really feel it just rip uh, off the pads of your fingers. It's the same thing with change-ups or splitters. It's the same feeling. A lot of people, when they're trying to learn to throw a different pitch, they, they kind of push it. You've got to finish it. You've got to feel that same feeling off of your fingertips that, that you feel on your fastball that you would feel on your changeup or any other pitch you're trying to learn. That's the secret sauce. That's what makes it so difficult to make it look like your fastball when you're trying to learn a new pitch, whatever that is, splitter, changeup, curveball, anything, any other grip that's off speed, uh, you've you got to learn how to finish that pitch and throw it, throw it with confidence. Pedro Martinez was great at that. And he had, he has much longer fingers than, um, than his, than his hand would suggest. So he was able to get that pressure on the back of the ball and really finish it. And his, um, his fingers could bend back, which I imagine would be a great skill for something like this and that he can get that snap off of that pressure on the ball. Absolutely. It's a great point, James. I mean, uh, a lot of people talk about, shoulder, rotator cuff, you know, core strength. To me, the wrist action and the fingertip pressure that you have is so important because that's the last thing. The last piece of the puzzle is when you get to the release point and release the ball, where's your hand position? Where's your wrist position? Are you also, are your fingers in a position to finish that pitch, to kind of add a little tug on it at the end of it, to be able to maybe add a little extra to it and time that just perfectly. Uh, You know, Pedro Martinez could touch his forearm with his Pointer finger and his middle finger. I mean, you think think about try that at home. If you're sitting at home right now, bend back your your pointer finger and how close can you get to your forearm? Pedro Martinez can bottom out and touch his forearm with his 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 pointer finger and his middle finger. I've never seen anything like it. The flexibility that allowed him to hold onto the baseball longer through lead release point, just a little bit longer, and to be able to have that finish, that action, that that finger pressure, that wrist action that discipline right through the release point is the last, the last thing that happens once the ball leaves your hand, it might be one of the most important things because that's your guide at home. Yeah. (laughs) Don't, yeah. Don't try, don't try bending your finger back and breaking it and dislocating it, trying to do what Pedro could do, but that's a little secret for Pedro. That's what made him so special among other things. Uh, He certainly had some gifts that that other people don't have. It was like physical intangibles. Pedro Martinez, huge hands, really long fingers, and the, uh, I, I guess, what would you call that? Being, you know, not having joints in your finger or being double jointed? Which way does uh, that pretty, go? Pretty close. He called it double jointed. Okay. I'm not sure exactly which joints uh, were doubled, <laughs> to tell you the <laughs> truth. But I just know that he had that sort of flexibility and there was no hesitation to it. He goes, look at this. Whoop. He bottomed it out. His fingers on, on his forearm, just like that. He didn't have to work it back. He just went, boom. Hey, look at this. And I was like, what in the world? When you first see it, it's, you don't believe what you're seeing. It's, it's like, this guy's a freak. I can't believe that he had that kind of, uh, you know, that kind of flexibility in his hands, his wrists, his fingers. So, uh, yeah, it definitely helped pitching. You know, it's, it's, one, it's one thing that can help you. When you throw a baseball for a living, 
to have that kind of flexibility in your fingers and your wrist uh, certainly helps. Yeah, if you're listening to this, do some experiments, see how far you can bend your fingers back, and maybe you can pitch at a high level. We'll, we'll, we'll wait and see. James, what do you got as we... Uh... One, one last thing on Pedro's changeup, and then when he threw it, you can really see that he ripped it. I mean, he really ripped it as hard as his fastball along with that, that finish action with his fingertips and, and his hand. And if you go back and watch some of his uh, highlights of his changeup, you'll notice that, that his arm speed is so fast. And you can almost see him kind of rip, rip the ball through through the release point uh, to, to really was the secret to his deception. When you talk about that and mentioning words like finishing, ripping through the rip finish, is that kind of similar to like a follow through in basketball when you're finishing your shot? Yeah, partly, yes. I mean, uh, the thing I use in basketball is, is the spin rate. You know, and it really is a, a great way to explain spin rate in, in baseball. If you notice that if you shoot a basketball, even from the free throw line, and some guys really have a nice stroke and they really rip it and it has excellent backspin going to the rim, and some guys shoot it and it doesn't have as much backspin. But both, both uh, balls are traveling at the same velocity, but one has more spin on it than the other and that action. And some people believe in basketball that the people that have that good stroke and the good backspin on their shots – the ball stays on the rim a little longer. They get some jump balls to go in because they have what's called that shooter's touch. Uh, to me, in pitching, it's pitcher's touch. Some pitchers have that touch where they can reach out there. They call it pulling the string. Kind of, you know, a change-up, the, the, the metaphor is like you're pulling a string on a change-up. That's what I'm talking about. How you get that pull-the-string action is with that ripping finish. And if you want to equate it to basketball, it's somebody who has excellent backspin on their shots. Just that, that, real, that real good string. So maybe a C.J. McCollum in Portland has that kind of shooter's touch, that shooter's stroke. It's similar in baseball, imparting spin on the ball, much more important in throwing a baseball than it is in shooting a basketball, though. All right, James, what do you got? All right. Uh, Dan Zlotnick asks, do you remember seeing me at your perfect game? I was in the right field seats with my dad and was wearing a dark blue Yankees hat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 I do. Yes. I remember that. Uh, you know, it's, it's funny. Uh, you know, it's, it's the stories grow over the years, uh, but I can go back. There is a couple of photos that have the fans in the background at the moment of the moment of glory, so to speak. So yeah, I kind of look through some of those old photos and I'm wondering, where's that guy at now? What's this guy doing now? You know, I wonder, wonder what he's up to. So yeah, I mean, there is a little bit of that. You know, you wonder about the people that were there. And there's always people who say they were there that weren't really there, you know, so there's, there's 150,000 people who were there that day when there's probably only about 40,000. So yeah, that, that's to be expected, but yeah, it's, it's fun. It's fun to be part of a signature moment where people remember where they were when you did something on a baseball field. And uh, to me, I feel grateful. The further removed I get from it, the more thankful I am. Nice. So more seriously, uh, Brandon Graminos, I hope I have that right. B underscore Graham asks, was there a pitch that you were unable to throw that you wished you could add to your arsenal? You know, I, I it definitely would be a really good change up. I think well, I had this conversation with Garrett Cole a couple of years ago when he first signed with the Yankees, we both, he chose Pedro Martinez's change up. I, I chose uh, in Mario Soto's change up. They're both very similar. Mario Soto was a great pitcher for the Reds back in the seventies. And he was famous for the circle change. Maybe one of the, the first really good right-handed pitchers to feature that circle change and to throw it all the time and get a lot of swings and misses with it. So yes, that would be the one. Although I'd probably use Tom Glavin's grip. I wish I could just 
learn that. You know, I had a whole high school football injury where my pinky became deformed. And then my rookie year with the Mets, uh, I got drilled uh, trying to bunt. So that, that pinky got shattered. So it's kind of crooked. <laughs> I got a crooked pinky. So it's hard for me to throw a circle change because you kind of use that side of your hand to, to turn the ball over and, and pronate and throw a circle change. So my pinky got in the way. It was more like a rudder. And it just kind of got in the way of trying to learn how to throw a circle change up. So that's why I went to the split finger fastball. Uh, but I, I really could have used a really nice parachute, what I call a pull the ripcord parachute change up, like, like Pedro had, like Mario, Mario Soto had. Did you ever, so you ever thought like during your playing career, as you maybe stare down at your pinky every now and then, man, if this was just straight enough, I could execute this a little bit more. Yeah. You know, and then, yeah, Absolutely. That's what, that's what, you know, I'm a little flustered with is that I didn't stay with it and keep trying. Uh, I just gave up on it. I said, no, I got a crooked pinky. I can't throw that pitch. Let me just can it. And then talking to Tom Glavin, you don't really need that finger. You just need, you just need your middle finger and your ring finger and just throw a two seam fastball like that. And it'll work for you. I wish I would have done that, uh, you know, and learned, learned how to cultivate that particular grip because you take your pointer finger and your pinky out of the equation and you just throw it with the, you know, your, your ring finger and your middle finger and your thumb, you can move your thumb around on the ball a little bit to, to manufacture movement, but that's the grip you use. And that's the one I wish I would have used more. So that is Coney's first back to the future moment on toe in the slab after talking with, uh, with Tom last week. Perfect. Okay. This is uh, coming from an Instagram follower. Actually. Uh, it was a really good question. Uh, at AD number five says he's a dad with a nine-year-old left-hander who pitches. And he asks, when should kids begin to work on locating pitches? Should they start out learning how to throw up and down or in and out? Wow. Uh, locating pitches to me, it, it's, it's about uh, strike one first and foremost in, on any level, especially that level. Uh, that was the, you know, I know there's a lot of different theories nowadays, especially at the power game. And I'm very open-minded. I have a growth mentality on uh, new ways to train. Uh, there's medical data out there now that we didn't have simply 20 years ago. I think it's important to stay on top of that. I would definitely use weighted balls nowadays. I would do everything I could to get on top of the technology that allows me to train for velocity because make no mistake. Uh, we can talk about, about finesse. We can talk about learning how to do pit, throw pitches. We can learn to talk about uh, control or command and the difference between the two. But if you've got a little extra on your fastball, that's going to help you a lot. I mean, all the studies have shown that, you know, if you've got, you know, a couple extra miles on your fastball above whatever the average is on your level, you're, you're going it, to, it's going to help you. It's going to help you get away with mistakes. You can throw it right down the middle. If it's firmer, if it's, higher velocity you're going to get away with it so certainly i would do everything i can to train for velocity long toss and everything that goes with that but at the same time throwing strikes and getting the ball over the place and then if you're talking about locating uh, the hardest thing to do now that we learned the hardest thing to do with a baseball and throwing a baseball is get lift on it to make it ride the lifting action is the hardest thing to do to make a ball sink, it's much easier because you have the benefit of gravity helping you. You know, you just learn how to grip it, split it, two-seam it, turn it over, pronate a little bit. You can easily make a baseball sink. Uh, you know, the quality of that sink certainly varies from pitcher to pitcher, but it's much easier to make the ball drop with the help of gravity than it is to defy gravity and make the ball rise or lift. So uh, if you're talking about location and up and down and you've got a kid with a good arm and he's holding the ball cross seam, 
I say up and down because if he can learn how to get that riding action, and it's not just about velocity, although that's part of it, but it's about the quality of the spin, the efficiency of the forcing spin and studying that and learning how to make it very efficient, uh, you know, get active, what they call active spin. Uh, then you can get that lifting and riding action that is very elusive. The hardest thing to do for any pitcher is to get that, that kind of action on your pitches. Do you think you'd ever have, uh, do you think you'd ever have the patience to teach youth baseball, Coney? Yes. I think okay. you know, I, I've done in the past. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I love all levels. Uh, okay. You have to have obviously a different mindset going in a different level of patience, but the basics are still the basics and teaching how to have fun is still there. I, I would make things much, you know, much more fun. I think, you know, to the, to today's generation and the kids and, you know, whether, you know, uh, talk about attention spans and so many choices. And I see it for what it is. I, I, I don't, I don't say, you know, Hey, we had it so much better back in the day. Not really. You know, I admire the kids nowadays. They have a lot of choices, a lot of different ways to go about it. They learn differently through video games and technology nowadays. I think you need to embrace that. Uh, but yes, I would, I would try to make it as fun as I can and then teach them the very basics, you know, about how to grip it, how to throw it, and then how to have fun with it. Yeah, I laugh when I ask that because it's like such a hit or miss question with with players who've done it at the highest level. So I was, I was really curious. I, I didn't know if you had a background in it or not, but um, there, there's a bunch of questions that could cater to some of these younger athletes. And I think they're really interesting. And that's kind of one of the reasons why starting this was, was intriguing because we can get some really good information out, but James, what, uh, what else we have here on this mailbag? Um, Shamu Sam asks in game, what has been a time when you've lost the feel for a pitch or pitches, but then regain that control. What's something a pitcher could do mid game to refocus and get back on track? It's a great question. It is uh, the point of maturity for a pitcher to be able to deal with that exact issue in my mind. And it was hard for me to, to learn that because there is a panic that sets in warming up before the games. When I was, when I finally made it to the big leagues was a very anxious time for me because I worried about uh, what my stuff was going to be like warming up before the game. Do I have my good fastball? Is my slider breaking the way I want it to? Is my stuff sharp enough? Uh, you know, I was obsessed with that uh, to the point where by the time I got to the middle and into my career, I didn't even care how I threw in the bullpen. I knew I'd figure out a way. I knew how to be patient. I knew inning to inning grips and pitches and feels can change. If you're patient and you keep a pitch and keep bringing it along that by the third or fourth inning, it's going to be there for you. And that's why I say it's important to get into a pitching mode early and not panic. Try to mix in all your pitches at opportune times early in the game, just so you can have a feel for them. But then never panic if it's not doing what you want it to do. Keep bringing it along, whether it's your third best pitch or your fourth best pitch. Keep it in your hip pocket. Keep throwing it enough throughout the game just to keep a feel for it. And then when you really need it, now you can make adjustments. And all of a sudden, maybe, you know, we called it uh, getting the rough edges worn off for a starting pitcher. Sometimes the first inning, you're a little anxious, you're strong, you're overthrowing, so that by the time you hit the 50 pitch mark, you've got those rough edges worn off to where your rhythm settled in, you're, you're not overthrowing your pitches as much, and now you can really settle into a groove, and maybe that pitch that wasn't working in the first inning is going to work for you now, because your rhythm is better, you're a little bit worn down just enough uh, to where you're, you're getting ready to peak, whether it's 50 to 75 pitches and then beyond. We can do a study 
you know, of this, whether your first 50 pitches, your next 25 pitches, pitches 50 through 75, pitches 75 through 100. You can, you can sort of uh, slice it and dice it and think anything you want. Uh, but the most important time uh, to bring along that third pitch is when you get to that 75 pitch mark. And you're talking about starting pitchers having a hard time getting through the third time in the order. And that, you know, that's when you're usually taken out of the game nowadays. Well, that's when you need that third pitch. That's when you really, if you're patient with it, that can help you get through that third time in the order and improve your numbers as a starting pitcher in that particular category. Because when you do that, then you're going to be allowed to pitch deeper in the games. You're going to be that outlier, that one starting pitcher that says, you know what, my numbers are kind of the same or they don't really drop off that much from second to third time through the order. And, and that's where you want to be. And that's, you know, how you do that is you never panic and you keep throwing those third and fourth pitches so that when you do need them third time through the order, they're there and you've got the element of surprise. You've got a different look to show the hitters through the third time through the order because the key for their success against you is familiarity. They've seen your stuff. That's the whole point. The third time through the order, really good major league hitters are going to be better against you your third time through the order because they know what you have. They've seen it for two times through the order. Uh, they know what to look. They can anticipate. The mystery's out of it. But all of a sudden, you break out another pitch that you've held in your back pocket. That could be an equalizer. And to me, that's the key. That's why we stay. Starting pitchers need at least three pitches, generally speaking. And the more weapons you have, the better off you are. Don't panic. Keep throwing them. Keep bringing them along because by the fourth and fifth inning, something might be there. You know, a different feel might be there for you because you're a little worn down. You're a little more tired, but still getting ready to peak and getting ready to get through the middle part of your game. I think the the modern debate is when to pull a starting pitcher or some traditionalists don't like the whole third time through the order narrative there. But if you said, if you're three or four pitches deep, variety is the key right there to kind of getting through that start. All right, let's check out another question from a Twitter user at N7, uh, E-N- SEV, the number seven EN creative. Uh, all right. As someone who has never pitched, what are the top three things I can look out for during a game that help me truly appreciate good pitching? Well, one thing you can look for is uh, first and foremost, very simply is just, is the pitcher in control? Is he in attack mode? Is he the aggressor? It's sort of like boxing, right? Justin, who's, who's uh, dictating the action. It's a very similar in, in the pitcher and the batter matchup. Controlled aggression. Exactly. That's what you call it. Absolutely. Controlled aggression. Um, who's doing that from the start? Who's got that confidence? Who's got that good body language on the mound? Who is in attack mode? And then secondly, if you're looking for performance, just look at how many swings and misses he gets and how many called strikes he gets. To me, it's an interesting stat. Uh, there's a great website, pitcherslist.com. There's several great writers in there. Nick Pollock is very good there. And so many other great writers for pitchers list. I highly recommend it. Uh, they, they have a category that's been picked up by ba- uh, baseball savant. It's really called strikes and swinging strikes. And you keep track of those. And that's a really good number to look at. How many swinging strikes did he get? How many called strikes did he get? And to me, that, that's pretty good because if you throw a pitch and you miss a bat and a guy swings and misses, that's pretty, you did something right. And if you throw a pitch and it gets called a strike and the hitter doesn't swing, that's pretty good too. Either you fooled him or your sequence was right, or you caught him off guard. So you have to learn how to throw something for strikes other than your fastball. I keep track of that. How many times you can get your breaking over for a call, your breaking ball over for a called third, for a called strike. Uh, those are the sorts of things I look for on performance. You know, it's, you know, it's uh, on the mound, it's presence on the mound, attack mode. And then those two categories, swinging strikes and called strikes. 
you know, they tell they, they can tell you a lot about you know what you, what you're supposed to be looking for and how good the pitcher's pitching. All right, James, let's uh, have time for a couple more here. James, what do you got? I think so. Um, Chuck E. Cheese, Charles underscore Carney. Did you find the days where you might not have had your ace stuff but still made a good start more or less fulfilling than the day where you just went out and dominated? Uh, yeah, I wouldn't say more fulfilling, but I'd say there's definitely a sense of pride that you, you got through it. I would rather pitch with the stuff I had on the day I threw the perfect game, you know, where everything's there and you're, you're on and you're, you're striking hitters out. There, there is a little bit of a pride factor knowing that you, 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 you gutted one out. You didn't really have good stuff, but you just didn't give in. You were stubborn. Maybe you walked a couple of batters. You kept trying to make pitches. If you watch me pitch back in the nineties in some of those postseason games, you probably saw a few performances like that game three of 96 in Atlanta was kind of like that. I wasn't dominant by any means kind of struggled at times, got a couple big double play balls that were lucky at times, but I just never gave in. Chipper Jones, you are not going to get a pitch to hit today. And he actually mentioned that after that game. He was like, I didn't see anything I could hit all day long. And if I walked him, go, go stand on first base, Chipper Jones. You're not hitting a home run this game. You know, that kind of mentality of, you know, I, I, boy, it wears you down. You're worn down emotionally after those type of games. After game three, 96 in Atlanta, I was so emotionally drained just because every pitch was so important and every pitch I shot from the corners, I was not going to give in. I picked my spots, when to throw strikes, when not to throw strikes, who to pitch around. You know, those games are gratifying. They really are, but they wear you down emotionally. I'd much rather pitch with really good stuff when I have a big strikeout game. You know, I struck out 19 batters against Philly one day with the Mets on the last day of the season. I'd rather pitch with that stuff I had that day, any day of the week, than, than grind one out. But, but yes, there is, there is a pride factor in being able to, to have success on days when you're really struggling. I think it goes back to the spot we had with Corbin Burns. You know, you asked him which outing he liked more, and he, without hesitation, picked the one with more strikeouts. Because when you're doing that, when you're striking guys out, you are just feeling it throughout that outing. There, there is something about that. Um, you know, in today's game, we talk about, you know, I mean, the, the naysayers say there's not enough action, there's not enough athletes, you know, the yada, yada, yada on the criticisms over today's game. But what I see in today's game, some of the best pitching I've ever seen, especially on the bullpens. And James and I have talked about this. The power has gone up, but the, uh, the, the design of pitches is as good as ever. I still see, see guys like Clay Holmes throwing great Maddox-type sinkers that start left-handed hitters and break over the inside corner. I still see front door pitches that are nasty. Front door sliders from guys like Adam Adovino that are to make me, you know, want to jump up out of my seat. I was like, I, I threw that pitch. I started throwing that pitch. There's some, there's some trailblazers like Oral Hershiser and Greg Maddox, and even a guy named John Burkett who started throwing these type of pitches we're seeing today that were really frowned upon in the 50s, 1950s, and 1960s by old school pitching coaches. Uh, you know, there, there was a formula you had to stay with. Your breaking balls had to be down and away. You couldn't throw breaking balls in the inside corner because they were home run pitches. I could go on and on. The pitching I see today is better than I've ever seen in my life. I'm a huge fan of what some of these guys are doing today. And yes, the power's more. And yes, these guys are throwing harder than ever. But the craftsmanship is still there. I see it night in and night out that these guys are, you know, are paying attention to tunneling, to pitch design, to messing with their grips, to pitch shapes. It is better than it's ever been in the history of the game. The, the pitching top to bottom, including the bullpens. 
And I think you bringing that up segues really nice to our, our final question that we're going to ask here. And look, we had a, a ton of great questions. We're going to do this again as well as we keep going here on Toe in the Slab. But for the final one, this episode, it comes from at Ray Blay. And he asks, is the extinction of starting pitchers the natural endpoint of the shorter starts trend? And what would it take for the game to boomerang back to starters finding length? It's an excellent point. I mean, we see the game trending that way. Uh, I think two questions are, and then these rules uh, changes have been uh, speculated upon, but a couple of remedies, so to speak, is if you want to bring back the prominence of starting pitching would be to have a universal DH and potentially tie the DH to the starting pitcher. So if the starting pitcher gets taken out of the game, you lose your DH. The second part of this would be uh, to limit the number of pitches you can carry on a roster. We know uh, by today's standards that all the extra guys are in the bullpen. We've seen some major league games where there's maybe two guys on the bench, a backup catcher, and then a, a utility guy that can play everywhere on the field, like all nine positions almost. So that's the trend. Uh, you know, to me, uh, that, that's just a little skewed. You know, maybe I, I'm a big believer in the bullpens and the arms. I love them. Uh, there's some great pitching coming out of there, but yeah, if you want to, you want to, put a limit on that. I, I think it's something worth talking about the DH rule. I don't know if that's the answer or not, but that's something worth talking about uh, the entertainment factor of knowing who the starting pitcher is and maybe buying a ticket to go see that game because of said starting pitcher. Yeah. Okay. There's still guys like that out there. There's, you know, Scherzer's out there. I would like to see more young pitchers get the opportunity to develop into these frontline starting pitchers and get a chance to pitch third time through the order and get a little deeper in the games and, We'll see how that shakes down in the future. Uh, but yes, there are some rule changes that are being discussed. So I would imagine uh, further discussion is warranted and necessary at this point. Something you said there really resonated with me, and I, I want to run with it here, is that there are a lot of young starting pitchers here, and I kind of equate it to young starting quarterbacks in the NFL, where if you're not producing at that high level that they projected you doing, maybe not right at the gate, but first two years, three years max, well, then they're, they're moving on. They, they see this as a, a failed plant, so to speak. And I think you're right. We, we need more of these pitchers to develop into those frontline starters, and it's going to happen at lower levels. And I'm a, like I said before, earlier in this episode, you talk about fandom and pitchers being the marquee attraction. I went to David Wells's perfect game. I am a poster boy for being, you know, you know, having their mind blown by the art of pitching. That's what drew me in. I am about that marquee attraction in terms of the starting pitcher. So I'm always going to be like that because it happened to me. And I think there's still room for it to happen in the future to other younger fans. I could not agree more. There's a way to balance the equation. Um, all the medical data that we have in place now from years and years of research from guys like uh, Dr. Andrews in Birmingham, Alabama, the, the number one shoulder guy out there and, and elbow guy really for a long time. There's several great, great doctors out there that do these surgeries, Tommy John's, shoulder surgeries, anything you want to talk about. The data we have now that shows one thing, it shows the most susceptible pitchers get to injuries when they're fatigued. So from the bench, you can tell that if a guy gets through five innings, and he's got close to 100 pitches, and he's had runners on every base, and he's had to labor a little bit, yeah, yeah, take him out. Yeah, that's enough, you know. But if a guy's really throwing the ball well and doing everything he's supposed to do, and he's economical, he's throwing strikes, 
give this guy a chance to, to learn how to get through the third time of the order. You know, whether it's, you know, it's a, a, a young one or two year player, like you're talking about, Justin, a, a young potential really frontline starter. The only way to learn is to let them to let them go out there and try. You can balance the equation. You don't have to push guys if they're laboring and you want to protect them from injury. There's a way to mat to mesh the medical data and a little bit of old school. Let's let this guy learn on the job. Let's let him push it a little bit, you know, especially in certain games where he's throwing the ball well and he deserves it. Mm-hmm. And maybe your bullpen's a little thin. And this will be a good time to let him try to go through and get through seven innings and get through much less three times through the order. How about four? When's the last time a starting pitcher faced four hitters in one game or multiple times? You know, that, that we haven't talked about the fourth time through the lineup yet. We're trying to get through the third time in the lineup. It, a lot of pitchers don't know what it's like to pitch through adversity. And we've even had some guests come on here in, in the short lifespan of Till in the Slab. We've had multiple guests talk about that very topic, pitchers, you know, not being able to, to kind of face adversity and work through their troubles on the mound. Uh, first mailbag, a lot of fun. We're definitely going to have more. So if your question wasn't answered, no fear. We're going to do it again and be sure to send your questions back into uh, Toe in the Slab as we get moving here. This week in, in baseball history, James, week of December 13th, what do you got? Well, uh, we're going to go to December 17th, 1920. That is uh, 101 years ago this Friday. Uh, after the spitball had been banned before the season, the American and National Leagues voted to grandfather in 17 pitches, pitchers who relied on the pitch to continue to throw for the rest of their careers. So they banned the spitball. They say, well, these guys are, are too reliant on it. So we'll just let them keep going until they play out the strength. And among them, uh, we have some Hall of Famers. Uh, one of Coney's favorite pitchers of all time, Urban Shocker. He was one of the guys that got grandfathered in there, Coney. Uh, Hall of Famers, Stan Kovaleski and Red Faber. Uh, Jack Quinn, Ray Caldwell, some great pitchers from the 1910s uh, were able to continue to throw the pitch uh, into the 1920s after it uh, was banned. The best known of the group might be Hall of Famer Burley Grimes because he was the last one standing. He used it all the way until his final season in 1934. So it's pretty wild that they just kind of they carved out a little nook for these guys and say, oh, they can keep going. Grandfathered in, right? <laughs> that was if you, if you don't, yeah, I mean, the spitball is so unique, you know, and I, I talked to Gaylord Perry, one of the best in, in history at throwing the spitball. And it is, you know, it's, I got to get my Don Larson ball out here in a minute. I'll show you, but on the Cy Young award, I talk about the dry spitter grip on it. There's, there's no steam. You just get on all leather and you have a little moisture on your fingertips. It's like spitting an ice cube and it's so unpredictable. The ball will shoot right. It'll shoot left. It's, it's hard to predict where it's going to go, even harder to catch. That's why catchers, it's a nightmare for catchers to try to catch it. That and the knuckleball, very similar to the knuckleball in terms of no spin. You don't know which way it's going to break. It's very unpredictable. So you can imagine it's hard to catch. It's pretty hard to hit as well. So, uh, yes, spitball was, uh, was uh, one of the all-time toughest pitches ever to hit. Is it like the knuckleball in the sense that you, you either have it or you don't? You could either control it to the best of your abilities or you have no business throwing it. Well, you know, a knuckleball is more with the fingertips. You dig your fingernails into the ball and you kind of push it out with the spitter. If you can throw it harder, the spitter, you throw it, you get extension and you just kind of spit it off the seam. It just squirts out like an ice cube. So you can throw it harder, the, the, the spitter. You can, and, and, and the movement is later. Where the knuckleball is more like a butterfly dancing. The spitter comes in hard and dives quick, and the, the, the change of uh, 
of trajectory, the change of direction on the pitch is just unpredictable and late and quick. And as I said, catchers have a hard time catching it. Hitters have a hard time hitting it. Interesting because, I mean, you, you read some stories from pitchers after that era. They're throwing the spitball then. I mean, you mentioned Gaylord Perry too. So those were like, you know, loose guidelines, obviously, but that's definitely a pitch that we're not seeing anytime soon, even in, in, in 2021, 2022. <laughs> you, you might be surprised. There's different variations on that pitch. Um, you know, I, I, I won't, I won't give out names, but a couple of very prominent pitchers that I played with would keep uh, soap on the seam of their pants uh-huh. whenever, they, whenever they needed you know, uh, to, to load one up, so to speak, two strikes, need a big strike strike out here. I could go right to the seam on my pants, get a little slippery stuff, a little soap or some sort of substance of a slippery, get it right on my fingertips and right to the dry grip, right to the no seam grip and just throw it as hard as they can and try to get a strike out and watch the pitch dive. They probably have a little sign with their catcher too, a little <laughs> flick of the Jersey or some little sign with, you know, from pitcher to catcher to let them know, Hey, this one's loaded up and it's coming. Interesting. Do you need more than one hand to name those pitchers? There's at least a half a dozen that I've known out throughout the years uh, that, that have thrown it and thrown it very well. Uh, you know, one of them might be the you know, guy I mentioned earlier in this broadcast that might be the next pitching coach with the Mets. If folks Walter gets the job. So Roger McDowell is one of is the only name I'll give you because he would admit it to you. I and mean, he threw a super sinker anyway. Uh, but yes, in 1986, wow. The ball Go back, go Google Roger McDowell and look at some of his highlights and look at how, how much those balls are sinking in his prime in, in 1986. Just remarkable. Interesting. Okay, something to keep an eye on there. All right, three up, three down as we end the show here this week. Each of us gives one storyline around the game we believe deserves a little light shed on it. James, why don't you go first? All right, I'll lead off. Uh, this week, I'll make a book recommendation just because of what I'm – what I'm currently reading, uh, Lords of the Realm by John Hellyar. Uh, it is a history of uh, baseball's labor movement and Marvin Miller. And it, it the bulk of the story picks up from when uh, Marvin Miller came on as the head of the Baseball Players Union uh, in the 60s and through all the battles for arbitration and free agency, 70s, 80s, up until, uh, up until the 90s. And uh, it's a great book it's very well written and you just get to know all these characters like charlie finley and miller himself and it's just it's a great if you like uh the history of the game uh you'll love it and i think obviously considering the lockout that we're all in uh it's uh, pretty timely too to get a a glimpse of the history between well what are the, what are the two sides fighting about what you know the players and the owners and the, the relationship that they've had uh over the entire history of professional baseball and uh so i I'd say lords of the realm uh give it a, a thumbs up on on this end great book absolutely i've read it uh, it is must read it is a must read if you're interested in these sorts of things the history of baseball everything about it you know the owner's side what their objectives are yes great great suggestion there you know i'm going to go with uh something very simple that we mentioned in our last podcast with tom glavin and i've been thinking about this and and I, you know, I'd like to just throw this out there quite simply as a potential proposal that could break a little bit of this long jab uh, between the players and the owners. And that proposal is not unprecedented. You know, we're talking about 
the players are looking for a radical change potentially to maybe bump off a year of free agency. Right now we know that the, on the major league level, the players are controlled for six years. After three years, you're able to go to arbitration. After six years, full six years, that you're able to go to free agency. Now we know that time has been manipulated with some of the younger players, manipulation of service time. They keep in the minors a little bit longer in order to add another year. So that six years is turning into seven years, you know, on the long run. Example is Aaron Judge right now. He's ready to enter his sixth year. Um, my proposal is to go back to the early 80s. Originally, Marvin Miller, uh, when, you know, when, when the log jam was broken, uh, the reserve clause came down. We have to, to create a whole new compensation system. Marvin Miller knew back then that we didn't want free agency every year because it was a supply and demand sort of a thing. We wanted to stagger the free agents so that there would be, you know, a trickling of free agents every year. So their value would be more uh, for me though, back then in the early eighties, arbitration was after two years. You know, I mentioned Fernando Valenzuela won a big arbitration case in the early eighties after his big year, big couple of years, his first two years, he won over a million dollars in the early eighties, an enormous amount of money. He wouldn't have come anywhere close to that had he not been eligible to use arbitration. It's been there. The president has set. If I'm the players, that's exactly what I'm asking for, to go back to two years of arbitration. It's a great counter to the service manipulation time. Uh, the owners really have, have had the upper hand to, over the last couple of agreements. Uh, that's my suggestion. Go back to two years arbitration. The players, it's been done before. It's not unprecedented. You know, and it's a way to combat uh, service time manipulation. I know the players are probably asking for that as we speak. I think it's a fair ask, considering how, how it's gone the last two years. And, you know, after two years in the big leagues, you should be able to go to arbitration and, and find out, you know, what your worth is. If you look at how many players after their first and second year that have had great years, uh, if they don't have arbitration, they're, they're pretty close to the minimum wage. And I, I saw something, uh, somebody uh, estimated that, of all the big league players this year, over 50% were in the pre-arbitration years. Think about that. You know, over 50%, closer to 60% of all major league players last year were in pre-arbitration years, meaning they're close to the minimum wage. So when you talk about average major league salary and median major league salary, big difference there, huge difference. It's skewed because the owners know that they can uh, – you know, they can, they can use the younger players and marginalize the veteran guys. So two years arbitration, that's, that's my point. I know it's probably being asked for. I think it's a fair ask on the player side to get arbitration to go from three years and the super twos. There is a, a category called super twos that some of the players, uh, a percentage of the players in between service time that are closer to three years than two years of service time can, can go to arbitration and be called a super two category. Right at two years, I say bump it back like it was in the 80s. Two years arbitration. It's a good move for the players if they can get that. It would be a good faith move on the owner's part to allow that to happen and then get something else in return, whatever the owners want, expanded playoffs or whatever the trade-off would be. Uh, that would be an interesting trade-off for me for the players' side to, to claw back some of that value for their players that are younger. Yeah, it goes to show that, you know, the idea of going to two years arbitration is not that radical. It's happened before. Three years was not uh, handed down on stone tablets. So it's interesting that, uh, that it would be a return uh, to what it was you know, years ago. And if you look at aging curves now um, and how production uh, is distributed among younger players versus older players, players are peaking earlier. Players are hitting the major leagues closer to their best production. So 
you're having a larger share of higher quality play taken up by players who are closer to the league minimum salary and before arbitration. So maybe something does have to be tinkered with in order to kind of balance out um, the production for players of their salary. One thing I wonder, because so much has, I guess, passed down between the players about what not to give up or not, you know, what not to break over. I wonder if this is one of those cases for the owners. I'm sure there was a lot that happened for them to concede that extra year to push it to three back in the eighties. I'm wondering if, if, if that was, you know, if they would ever go back, I mean, obviously it would benefit them, but it, it might, you know, the, the union might be able to ask for a lot in return for that one year. I'm not sure. Well, yeah, that's a question, right? I mean, I, the, the pressure points as, we, as this unfolds, you know, the owners are, you know, what we found out during COVID is that the owners save money by not playing games. So, you know, following uh, the COVID crisis through this off season, and, you know, do, do we have a resurgence? Uh, does that impact the bargaining with the owners? You know, if they miss one month, April's games, 30 games or so, is that really, you know, is that really going to hurt them as much? Because mm-hmm. the owner's revenue, a lot of the revenue, not all of it, but a lot of it's tied up in the postseason. That's why they want expanded postseason. So, you know, when this last negotiation came during COVID, the players wanted to play more games. The owners wanted to play less games because, you know, in, unless they have full stadium crowds or unless they, you know, everything's open back up and everything's close to normal, they're almost better off not playing these games. So I don't think we'll ever get there to that point again. You know, stay tuned, you know, how this pandemic uh, pans out over the last, uh, you know, over the, over the next few months. The owners are certainly buying time right now. And uh, once we get to that point of, okay, we're going to miss the month of April if we don't make this deal within a week, that's when you'll find out. you find out how strong both sides are, are the players and the resolve. Until that point, you don't really know. It's all just kind of bluster, right? Both sides are talking tough right now. Rob Manfred's letter we mentioned last week, I thought was a swing and a miss, but it was kind of a... It was a dig, no doubt. A couple of digs in his letter at the Players Association. The players are talking tough right now. The only way to find out is when you get to those pressure points, and and uh, you know, and that's when you that's when you know you kind of it's it's a, it's a who's going to blink first. You know, and the time's not now to find out who's going to blink first. The time, probably February, somewhere in February first, will be that time where we're up against it. We're going to find out who has more resolve. A three up, three down for me and. It's a product of the lockout. It's also a, a kind of a, a social media snafu. And we give our shout out to the Houston Astros social media team here. And they pulled off a very spectacular double whammy on Twitter last week. And first on Friday, they asked their followers to choose your Astros. And you see this around certain angles of social media, betting sites have it. But if you're like in this, social media department for a, a pro sports team. I think you're looking for something that sticks, right? A fad that works. And then every single other team in pro sports is going to copy you. And that, that's what you want to be. You want to be the trendsetter sort of. This was not a novelty, but they asked their fans to choose your Astros where they have their all-time greats on a grid, different levels. You could spend anywhere from $1 to $5. And they said you get 15 bucks to choose from these all-time Astros, who are you building your team around? One problem, we're in a lockout. And because teams are not mentioning or showing current players on their website, 
There is no sign of some of the best Astros of all time. Jose Altuve, Alex Bregman, Carlos Correa, uh, Justin Verlander, George Springer. None of them are visible on this grid. So with all due respect to Chris Burke and you know Cesar Cedeno being lobbied for four bucks, uh, it, it, was, it was not the right time to do this. And then they came back on Saturday, and I saw, James, that you saw this. The Astros tweeted out for fans to drop their favorite Astros Christmas decoration. And if you think about that, the responses were exactly what you'd imagine them to be. So memo to them, it will always be too soon on that front. And overall, a banner weekend for the uh, Astros social media team. Don't like to you know, throw too many things under the bus. We're good natured, but that caught my attention. And uh, I think a lot of people should at least go and, and take a look at some of the responses from, from the Saturday tweet. It'll, it'll be entertaining. So that's all I got. Uh, three up, three down. That's how we end the show. Guys, this was a lot of fun. Open up some mail. It's been uh, rejuvenating here. I like it. You know, can, can we do like the players are doing? Can we just do the outline of our, of, you know, get rid of our, <laughs> get rid of our, our face and just have silhouettes in the background. <laughs> Show some solidarity here. So. Yeah. So we'll turn the cameras off for sure. <laughs> there you go. Awesome. All right, guys, another week in the books. Thanks a ton. Always great chatting with you. And Hey, next week is our draft. So we open up the mail. We do a mailbag the next week we have a draft. So we are in, full podcast mode right here quintessential podcast topics but next week be on the lookout we will have our best pitch draft and we're gonna go through the details of all that it's gonna be a lot of fun here on tone this lab david james thanks a ton for uh coming on and opening up some mail better than opening up the bills right good deal get to hear about you guys's background too that's kind of nice so guys we got a little uh a little instant bio here on you guys so i appreciate it. i learned something about you both that's right we're, so we're, we're locked in and trusted for at least 10 more episodes uh that'll wrap up here today thanks to everyone who sent in those questions and thank you to our our producer kyle he's filling in for dan work this week again next week our pitch draft we draft the pitches that we would want right now heading into the 2022 season so we'll be back with that next week please be sure to rate review subscribe best way to support the show here on Tone of the Slab, Pitching with David Cohn. It is a production of John Boy Media. We'll talk to you next week.